0: Coming up this hour, we're talking Franklin Graham, Francis Chan, COVID etiquette, and QAnon. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm, and together... This is the common good. I got to stop doing that one. It's it feels way too Captain Planet for this show.
1: <laughs> it does. <laughs> was, together We are the common good. <laughs> I was not
0: allowed to watch Captain Planet. Was that a show? You're a little older than I am. Was that a show that you even desired to watch?
1: Man, I watched a lot of TV as a kid, and I don't know what Captain Planet was. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't feel like this is one of those where currently, like, I just don't ever have time to watch movies. I feel like I watched a lot of TV as a kid, but not that. <laughs> not that.
0: <laughs> well, I, uh, yeah, maybe one day we'll commit a segment to, like, the things we weren't allowed to watch. I think Simpsons was probably also in there. He was, Bart was disrespectful, so that wasn't a he show was. that we were allowed to consume, which, you know, now that I have kids, I think, ah, good on them. I, I can understand why they might have made that decision. Either way, neither here nor there, we got to get moving real quickly before we do. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. You can ask Alexa to play the show for you. You can get the podcast wherever it is. You get podcasts. Subscribing and rating and reviewing is maybe the most holy thing you can do today. And so I encourage you wholeheartedly to do that. Two links real quickly here. I want to just briefly touch on the first one and then take a deeper dive into the second one. I I literally just saw this as we were beginning. Uh, 12,000 plus signed petition to remove franklin graham from samaritan's purse did you see this
1: i did not in fact i'm just clicking on it right now that's that is surprising it says 12 thousands plus signed petition that's that's interesting Uh, i'll read it for us here a petition that has garnered twelve thousand signatures calls for the removal of franklin graham over his support of president trump the petition cites the prayer franklin offered at the republican national convention uh, the uh, the petition was published on August 28th by Faithful America, an online community of Christians putting faith into action for social justice. So, man, your first uh, thought at this is 12,000, a lot of signatures or not a lot of signatures for something like this?
0: Oh, man, I was not expecting that question. I honestly have no idea. I feel like yeah. I feel like with the right platform, you can get 12,000 people to sign yeah. anything. So part of me yeah. thinks, hmm, maybe not a big deal. However, Twelve thousand people that feel that strongly about uh, someone that prominent you know with that level of exposure i think I think that's a big deal and if if this article in particular isn't taking any kind of side it's it's trying to it doesn't look like it's really trying to in any way uh, endorse or condone or editorialize but I don't know I, I maybe we'll talk this I'll talk about this a little bit more tomorrow because I wonder yeah. if, if like this is the if this is going to be a version of cancel culture in the future, like rather than just the internet deciding, Nope, you're done. They're going the way of petition. And you have a lot of like petition websites now where a number of people have been able to make pretty sizable changes in organizational leadership because of, you know, some kind of outcry. And I, I think that, I think it will be an interesting talking point if this is the trend towards how, how leadership, you know, is, is handled in the public square. I think that's pretty interesting. I don't want to talk about that. Too much more, though, because I found this other article with uh, Francis Chan that I thought to be pretty fascinating. So it's by Leonardo Blair, at the Christian Post, and says, Pandemic has revealed weaknesses in church culture, Francis Chan says. What is happening here?
1: It's really interesting. He was speaking at a Q session alongside what I find fascinating. He, he spoke alongside now virtually, obviously, with Tim right. Keller, Samuel Rodriguez, but also John MacArthur. Uh, And they all shared their thoughts on the pandemic and how the church should respond to issues such as restrictions and the ongoing debate on religious liberty. Uh, And Francis Chan, during his time, Francis Chan, you might remember, he left his huge church of Cornerstone Church in Simi Valley, California, and he now lives in Hong Kong, actually. But he says... Uh, It's revealed weaknesses in the Western church culture that can be addressed by using restrictions as an opportunity to go deeper with God. He says, I love this season we are in. And I think every true believer does because we look at kind of the status quo and we're just hoping for a time when we're forced into action. Hmm. It's almost like you're training, you're training, you're training for something. And here it is. Are we prepared or not? And it's a time where, uh, Chan says, I look at it like the time when the Israelites were in the desert. There are those who are like, ah, let me get back to Egypt, you know, but back to the way it was when I knew what was going to happen tomorrow. But I'm going, oh man, you're missing out. You're being led by a ball of fire. Never in history has that happened. Never will it happen again. Don't miss this. And so uh, there's more to it, but first of all, you and I have both heard Francis Chan enough to like as I read that, did you hear his voice and more importantly, <laughs> picture his picture his hand movements?
0: <laughs> okay, just to say it out loud, he is a legitimately great dude. But yes. As, oh,
1: such a great speaker too. That's
0: right. Yeah. As every communicator knows, though, we all have ticks that could be easily caricaturized. And yeah. he, like all of us, has a couple. <laughs> so you're you know, he's he's spoken at exponential a couple of times, and my I've buddy heard, Eric yep. My buddy Eric Bramlett, uh, for the main stage keynote, always writes a parody song introducing the person. Have you seen the
1: song he created for Francis Chan? Uh, not only have i seen it i was there for it i oh, was you in were. the room when he did that's i believe that's the last exponential i went to it's one people need to youtube it it's one of the most creative and funny things you'll ever see i'm gonna go
0: find it we'll post it to the facebook page everyone eric bramlett is a creative genius and i think you all should uh, experience it that's not what this article at all is about nope. I'd, I'd be curious to know are you surprised at all by like the general arc and tone of what chan is saying
1: not at all when hmm. you know francis chan francis chan uh, one of the reasons he left his church at Cornerstone and one of the he's very prophetic in the way he talks. Right. And so one of Francis Chan's main things has been um, a uh, a frustration, if you will, about how we do church in America and the expectations and what the church is looking for. And so he's not saying we shouldn't be ever meeting again or this or that. But he's saying he I, it doesn't surprise me at all that he's saying, church, we must embrace this as opportunity uh, and not as setback. I do find it fascinating. He spoke and also John MacArthur spoke at the same thing. So I'm guessing they said two very different things. Uh. During
0: that. <laughs> well, he, and he goes, I I really appreciate his perspective. And again, like every teacher or theologian, I don't, I don't agree with everything that they say, right. but he was, he was really kind of leaning in on this idea of religious freedom. And he says, when you look at the places where there is religious freedom and you compare those places to where there is not religious freedom, what have we done with the freedom? It's just weakened the church. He goes on after I'm sure everyone caught their breath, says, uh, I'm not saying don't fight for it, especially if that's something God has called you to do. I'm grateful for the people who fight for religious freedom. I'm grateful to have it at the same time. I'm not really afraid of losing it because I look at how the church is flourishing and how it actually looks like the church of Scripture where there is persecution. And again, I'm not saying I'm wanting that or desiring that. But what I am wanting is to see a pure church where people are devoted, they're serious, and they understand what it means to really follow Jesus. Then we can really be a light to the world. I thought he he had the right amount of caveats. He's not saying, I'm pursuing persecution. I'm trying to get arrested. He's like, I'm very grateful for the freedoms I have and the people that fight for him. I'm just saying anecdotally, and he's traveled a lot, and he actually has, I think, a leg to stand on here. He's saying, yeah globally where the church is most persecuted, it does seem to be growing the most rapidly and not just like numerical you know fish from one aquarium to the other kind of growth like outpouring of the spirit, like baptizing disciples however whatever language you want to use I think I think he's right I think that's a really interesting perspective.
1: Yeah. And like you said, he is somebody who's put his money where his mouth is in leaving his church and going overseas, all this stuff. He even talks about, you know, oh, people are lamenting that there's no ministry for children right now. And he says, no, take advantage of this time. This is a time where we realized we were not ready for this. So if we get a little break, let's do everything we can to equip and prepare people for Mm -hmm. times like this, because I really don't believe he says this is the end of it. And so he's saying, again, in, in a classic Francis Chan way, he's saying, let's view the COVID time. As opportunity to make changes, to rethink things, and to not just long for what it was like on March 1st. Again, we, we might go back to what it was like on March 1st, but he's saying, how can we change, adapt for the short term now, but also what needs to stick for the long term?
0: That's a good point. As always, that article is up on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think about that. Coming up next from NPR, COVID-19 etiquette, six common conundrums. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and Brian Fromm is here, too. I can't yes, get out of my head the grammar of how I normally introduce. And You are stuck. <laughs> I'm seriously this close to, like, getting a cabin in the woods for a weekend and, like, workshopping some new intros because <laughs> it's, it's, like, in my head now, and I, I can't. I'm going to be awkward every time until I figure this out. We'll get that there. Funny. Did I make a plea for English teachers yesterday? Is that a, is did, that a real thing? i
1: here for many, but you did, yes. Oh, I thought boy. your dad was the grammar guy.
0: My dad is definitely a grammar guy. He's a words guy. I don't know how he'd feel about being called a grammar guy. We'll figure it. Okay. I'll ask him. I'll I'll give him a ring and see see if he's got any insight. Yeah, uh, I've got an
1: important work for you here, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: right. <laughs> Drop everything you're doing. I got to talk. Um, so before we get into this COVID-19 etiquette from NPR, this article isn't brand new. It's actually about a month old, but I found it pretty helpful. It's called uh, COVID-19 etiquette, six common conundrums. And a printable pocket guide. This is the kind of thing. (laughs) It's sort of on my mind today because uh, we were shooting a video at the Yellow Box, and there was a guest that I was interviewing who I'd never met before. But there was also a whole like film crew and a bunch of other things. And meeting someone new and not being able to like shake their hand, and then having a conversation that you know I thought went really well, but then not being able to like give a handshake or a hug or whatever, an appreciation. It almost felt stranger not knowing them because I feel like close friends and family—they're like we we get it, we understand. But yeah. the the like etiquette when it's someone that you're sharing some time with, but I don't know, it just it's bizarre because you never know people's comfort levels or what you're supposed to or not do. And then we're we're in a big auditorium. And you're like, well, we're technically inside, but it's a huge inside. You know, I don't know. I have you run into any sort of like
1: etiquette uh, hurdles as of late? It's- I mean, literally today we had, we're, we're going to be getting some work done on our house. And so I came home around lunchtime and uh, Carrie and I, my wife and I had to meet with this person and we met outside. Uh, but it was like you said, and sometimes I'm uh, unintentionally the one who kind of um, goes too far, I think when it comes to <laughs> I'm etiquette. shocked. I'm shocked. So he came and I was like, how are you? man?" And I immediately shook his hand and it was like this. I don't know what he thought of it, but my first thought was like, ooh, was that okay? Like literally after he left, my wife's first words were, go wash your hands. (laughs) Because it's so true. You don't know because you're so used to, you know, 43 years of my life, you shake somebody's hand. Or you give them a hug or you this or that. And it is, you you're you kind of stare at each other. I don't know. Yeah, it's really weird, man. It really is weird.
0: Well, I don't know how you feel about these uh, etiquette suggestions. I I would be curious to know how people on the interwebs feel, because, uh, I do think this is strangely a bit of a, a hot button issue. And cause I've had it the same is. situation where somebody extends a hand for a handshake and have to be like, ah, nah, man, we're not, we're not doing that. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like you're yeah. not prepared for like having to shoot down a handshake. I've never had to do that in that's my right. life ever. So, uh, right. I think that's I think this is actually a really helpful list and it's a good starting point at least for, conversations around etiquette. So why don't uh, why don't you get us into the list?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's basically they interview this person named Elaine Swan, who is an etiquette person. And so let's Mm -hmm. jump instead of use the background. There's six common conundrums and what to do about them. Number one, how do I tell somebody, especially a stranger to step back because that person is just too close to me? Swan says, this is the number one question people ask her. Your first inclination is to yell, step back or get up off me, she says. But those reactions aren't exactly polite and they're likely to escalate the problem. Instead, she says, try to use words like we and us in the request. For example... Hmm. Let's just put a little space in between each other while we're waiting in line. This shows mutual consideration. You're look oh. you're thinking about your behavior, how your behavior is affecting their health and hope they're concerned. So takeaway number one, there show mutual consideration. That's,
0: that's actually good. That's really good. It really uh, is. Number two, what if I ask a person to keep their distance or put on their mask and they say no? Then do what you can to protect yourself, says Swan. Turn your face away from that person. Step over a few feet. Walk in a different direction. Takeaway number two, protect yourself. Mm -hmm. Short and sweet. Good suggestion.
1: Yep, Number three, it makes my blood boil when I see people not following the pandemic guidelines. Can I intervene <laughs> if their behavior is not affecting you? Let it go, she says. Folks are getting into these argument and kerfuffles. I love that word because so they're trying to get folks to comply with pandemic guidelines. Stop trying to do that. If the person does not want to comply, you have to let crazy be crazy and <laughs> leave them alone. I wonder if people agree with this. The only time you should speak up, she says, is, it's, is if it's directly affecting your safety, then you can try using some of the we and us language in her suggestion. So takeaway number three, let it go. I, so far, I think that one might
0: be the most controversial. Well, I I'll, I'll be curious I what people think. Number four. What if I'm at a socially distanced outdoor gathering and after a few hours, people start to bend the rules a little bit, a.k.a. I wonder if there's alcohol involved. Try using (laughs) the we and us language if it's just happening with an individual, says Swan, saying to the person, let's make sure we stay in our little sections over here. (laughs) But if it's happening party wide, alert the host. She says the person in charge has the authority to enforce the pandemic guidelines. Swan suggests I noticed that people are starting to get relaxed with the guidelines. I thought I'd bring that to your attention. I'm curious, Brian, if that's something, if you were hosting a party, would you be receptive to someone making that suggestion to you as the host?
1: Yeah, I think I would be because you don't want people to be uncomfortable. But I ran into this. We I was at a funeral or helping with a funeral a couple of weeks ago, and there was a, the, you know, it started with like a visitation. And we had this whole plan about how people would stay distant, and then it just blew up, and people were like hugging mm-hmm. each other in this And I'm like, I don't know my role here, you know? It's yeah, so, right, it's so right. awkward. It really but is.
0: The section goes on and says, if the host does something about it, then great, says Swan. But if the shift doesn't happen and you're uncomfortable with the environment, then wrap it up. Just say, you know what? I'm going to head home now. I had a great time. Resist the urge to get on your soapbox, she adds. Don't make an announcement and say, nobody's following the rules and therefore I'm leaving. Then slam the door on your way out. You want to make sure that your relationships make it to the other side of the pandemic. That's a good word. Takeaway Number four, take yourself out of uncomfortable situations and remember to preserve relationships. Smart, smart, smart.
1: These are really good. Uh, Number five, a friend invited me to hang out. How do I know whether it's safe to do so? Hmm. We might not be on the same page with the pandemic protocols. Don't make assumptions. She says about how people are following the guidelines. Some people, for example, feel safer at home while others live as if the virus didn't exist. So ask a few questions in advance, she says. For example, I wear a face covering when I'm around others. How do you feel about wearing face coverings? Is that something you're doing? Is this going to be a social distancing affair? Listen to what they have to say. Then take a moment to step back and ask yourself whether it is something you feel comfortable with. If not, say thank you so much for the invitation, but I won't be able to make it. And don't push them to change their plans to fit into your level of comfort. It's not mm. the time to police our friends and our family members. Instead, we should curtail our own behavior and make decisions on what's best for ourselves. So takeaway number five, don't assume.
0: Okay. And then there's a bonus takeaway, bonus advice. What the heck do I do with my mask at a socially distanced meal? When you're eating, take the mask off completely, says Swan. And she adds, don't have it hanging from one ear it's going to be <laughs> chomping and chewing and drinking and talking in the duration of that time. So it doesn't make sense to try and wear it at the table. I will add though, this is a month old and uh, those, those rules have changed a bit in Illinois, haven't they? Where every time a waitress yeah. or waiter uh re-approaches the table, you're supposed to put it back on, but either way it right. says, but don't even think about putting your used mask on the table, says Swan aside from the germs. It's a major etiquette. No, no in general, uh, she says nothing should go on the table except for food. Takeaway please don't put your mask on the table. So either way, I'd love to know what people honestly think of this. This is from Malaka Garab. And I think it's a, it's a really helpful. The printable guide is wonderful. I think these are the types of things that I hope to see more of where people are offering like really practical, useful, like real time advice, because like you and I have talked about on the show a lot, it's so easy to be at each other's throats at the point of disagreement. So what if we educated ourselves a little bit before these scenarios to, uh, I don't know, maybe hopefully avoid some kind of situation. Is is there one, Brian, that really stands out to you?
1: You know, I think it's the talking in, in like the you and we kind of being collective about it instead of being like, Hey, you need to do this. Yeah. Instead, like, how about we stay like, how about we do this together? I think it's, lowering that tension a little bit and just kind of talking in terms of how are we going to keep ourselves safe right now
0: yeah that's smart man well speaking of things that may or may not cause a firestorm online coming up next QAnon is a wolf in wolf's clothing there's nothing sheepish about the insidious internet demon that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope you're Hey everyone welcome to the Common Good. Brian Promise here and I'm here too and we are glad you're here as well. How was that? That's great. I like <laughs> it. I like it. Are you such do you have a hard time giving like critical feedback?
1: I do. I have a hard time giving critical feedback and I also have a hard time receiving critical feedback. So wow. What is it like being a pastor, Brian? It's honestly like if our, 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 this might turn into a bit of a counseling session right here. It is my biggest struggle as a pastor. I totally
0: uh, I mean, there's a lot of jobs, there's careers you could have pursued where there wasn't a lot of critical feedback given or expected of you.
1: See, when I was younger, I wasn't giving critical feedback to any of my pastor, any of the pastors I knew. So I didn't know that was part of the gig. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so then you started getting it and you're like, wait a minute, is this how it goes? Is this the next 40 years of my life? Holy crap!
1: what just happened here. Honestly, <laughs> although we've talked about it before, but it is probably, uh, it's at least in the top of near the top of the list for me, biggest struggle, because people like to be critical and give feedback. And also one of the expectations of a pastor is you'll speak hard honest truth to people and i don't think i do either of them very well
0: well we we can maybe let's explore that another time uh, i want to talk about QAnon. why not yep. this is out of christianity today this is uh what about a week old QAnon is a wolf in wolf's clothing there's nothing sheepish about this insidious internet demons by bonnie christian written on august 26th and uh i love to pass the baton here and ask brian to get us into it
1: Yeah, QAnon is a big deal. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, you need to read up on it. Uh, And she's going to get into some of these reasons why. She begins, he doesn't know much about the QAnon conspiracy theory, President Trump told a reporter this month, but, quote, I understand they like me very much, which I appreciate, he added. I've heard that it is gaining in popularity. And from what I hear, these are people that love our country. The the reporter asked to follow up at the crux of this theory is the belief that you're secretly saving the world from this cult of pedophiles and cannibals. Does that sound like she trailed off apparently at a loss of where to go from there? Like something you're behind? Well, I haven't heard that, President Trump answered, but is that supposed to be a bad thing? Oh boy! (laughs) This isn't the first time uh, President Trump has interacted with QAnon. He has shared posts from a QAnon Twitter account And he greeted the primary victory of a pro-QAnon House candidate with enthusiasm. However, this explicit endorsement of the theory's believers, if not quite the theory itself, is new territory for President Trump. It will bring QAnon further into the political mainstream and make the cultic movement a greater threat to the American church. If you're among the majority of Americans unfamiliar with QAnon, a pause for definition may be in order. QAnon is a conspiracy theory that claims that a secret cabal in government, the media, and other influential institutions is engaged in child sex trafficking, cannibalism of a sort, and the usual uh, conspiracist uh, bugbear of world domination and human sacrifice. One sub-theory in the movement alleges that there's footage of Hillary Clinton and her aide, quote, ripping off a child's face and wearing it as a mask before drinking the child's blood in a satanic ritual sacrifice. The QAnon movement began when an anonymous poster called Q took to the 4chan online forum, ironically better known for its implication in child pornography and other foul dregs of the Internet, to predict Clinton would be arrested and massive riots would break out nationwide on October 30th, 2017. Well, that day came and went and nothing Q forecast came to pass. But here's the genius of QAnon. For those already convinced, it's unfalsifiable. According to Travis View, who researches conspiracy theories, he says Q will say something very vague like watch the water. And because water covers most of the planet, there's going to be a news event eventually that involves Trump and water. And the QAnon community will look at that and will say, look, Trump drank a glass of water on camera. Q said, watch the water. That means that Q predicted the event, which, of course, is is nonsense. So we're going to pause there because it's going to get into the dangers of this. Just knowing the background, though, Ian, of QAnon, I I am fascinated in a bad way uh, that Q or QAnon is gaining traction and seems to be getting a foothold, particularly in the far right um, uh, area of our of our country. It's pretty it's pretty crazy.
0: Yeah, I want to I'm going to do a kind of faux pas here. I want to read this last paragraph because I do want to get into not just what it is but what it yep. means for anyone listening maybe especially the christ follower um it ends by saying one reason q appeals to christians is it can feel like a way to live out jesus's instructions to quote be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves that's from matthew 10 hmm. the problem for followers of QAnon who are christians is that they actually aren't being shrewd enough QAnon is predatory drivel that undermines the authority of scripture and pilfer's trust we owe only to christ american christians have a responsibility to learn to identify it and flee so there's a lot of meat kind of in between that last paragraph and what you were saying brian but I'd, i'd love to know like what what do you think would be something someone listening could actually do to like better guard themselves against this
1: uh, first of all, I think what's important is for us to just consider the entire topic of conspiracy theories in general. Uh, and QAnon is part uh, is under that umbrella. And why is it that we believe them? Why are we drawn to them? Uh, in some ways, if we can find conspiracy theories that speak well of our candidate in this case or badly of the other candidate, we kind of gravitate towards them. And uh, I just think it goes back to, men. so much information is out there. Twitter, Facebook, like the amount of information we're bombarded with, not even on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, let alone a daily basis. We really do, to use that verse, have to be shrewd as as serpents and innocent as doves. And part of that means doing your homework and finding out, does this have any basis in truth? And, And that homework usually is more than just Typing it into Snopes, you know, like it goes a little deeper than that, right? And uh, I, I think if we, especially as Christians, aren't willing to do our homework, but we're just going to believe every chain email we get, every Facebook forward we get, every retweet we read, then we're going to start believing some crazy things. And th- it talks in the story about churches splitting over QAnon and other things. Like this is a big deal, especially as we move towards the election. And so I think we just have to do homework. And so many of us just aren't willing to put in that time.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting that there's I mean, I'm learning a lot about this, even from this article. It says the the way ardent Q supporters study drops for hidden truths and also residents with headlines resembles nothing so much as evangelical eschatology obsessions in the vein of the late great planet Earth. There's even a church of QAnon. I did not know that and no. congregants meet for services, pray, take communion and use incoherent anonymous posts from filthy online forums to guide their understanding of God's word. QAnon may not be an error to which CT readers are prone, but what I find deeply worrisome about this movement is how insidious it has become. The more Pentecostal moments of my upbringing didn't stick well enough to make me confident in diagnosis of demonic activity as opposed to ordinary human evil. But QAnon sure seems devilish. It deliberately preys on well-intended concern about the very real issues of sex trafficking followers glom onto anti-trafficking hashtags sharing content that casual viewers may not realize mixes, realize mixes truth with malignant lies. I do appreciate the line about it preying on well-intended concern for very real issues. That's part of what I think makes it so insidious. Like it's, it's a, obviously sex trafficking, human trafficking is a massive global issue. And some of the other types of concerns that QAnon seems to sort of stoke, um, it is, it People can feel I think emotional or deeply connected to their concerns, so to like pick apart the falsities of a claim from like their deeply held and probably oftentimes legitimized fear that 's part of where I think it gets a little tricky
1: yeah and I lastly, and this sounds really kind of strange, but we also have to realize there's people who are a lot more skilled and smarter at using social media than we are to frame narratives and to push yeah. messages and that, that it's not all this kind of level playing field. And so sometimes we're being fed stuff that if we're not careful, it becomes easy to believe. And then all of a sudden you go down these paths. I just think we have to be really careful because like you said, a lot of times there's a grain of truth. There's more than a grain of truth, but it's done with a purpose. And uh, I do. We've talked about this before from the Ed Stetscher article and others that we as Christians need to be particularly careful. Um, vigilant about the truth and about not just buying every conspiracy theory that we hear that makes us feel good about our candidate or our side or whatever else. Right, right.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good segue to this next article, actually, from Eugene Park. Are Christians more confident in politics than in Christ? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. The Common Good. You're here. We're here. Let's do this. Huh? Huh?
1: Sure, we'll go with that
0: one. <laughs> Brian from saying sure is like a condemnation from anyone else, isn't it? That's that's like as aggressively negative as you get.
1: <laughs> sure, I could have been pat- a bit more passive aggressive on that one. I could be like, hey, that was a really good effort. That was a good try, right there.
0: <laughs> Are you the kind of guy that would say something at like a party, like, oh, I, just, I love that you just don't care how you look or, or something? <laughs> Is that the kind of thing that you would say? Oh. <laughs> I love that you don't even try. That's amazing.
1: Uh, that's
0: funny. I love that you're, that look you're going
1: for. I don't know what it is, but you're pulling it off.
0: <laughs> it's amazing that you, you just don't at all subscribe to any of the uh, modern tropes. Good for you. Um, all right. So this is out of the Gospel Coalition, written by Eugene Park yesterday. The headline reads, Are Christians more confident in politics than in Christ? My assumption is... Most Christ followers would hear that and go, "Well, obviously not," which is part of what makes this article interesting. Because on the surface, I think a lot of us would say, "No, that's stupid." So let me let me get into it a little bit, and yeah. uh, then we'll get even more into it, and then we'll be out of time. Here we go. Uh, just as the pandemic has exacerbated the problem of Christians being more shaped by online pundits than in the flesh pastors, it has also intensified political tribalism. Have we gone a week, by the way, without talking about that sentence?
1: No. I'm like just in general. Yeah, Yeah, right.
0: Like it summarizes probably 40% of our content on the show. That's right. Uh, right. with, With few places to converse other than our online communities, the levels of vitriol and contempt have risen to insufferable levels. It's been painful to see the church in America follow the national discourse. In my social media feeds, I've witnessed church members tear each other apart over politics, forgetting that we are committing spiritual cannibalism as we choose partisanship over unity in Christ. As an Asian-American pastor, it's been fascinating to observe how Asian-American culture, previously apathetic towards politics, has now morphed into one characterized by fierce political discourse. Watching old college friends who never expressed political opinions before suddenly waging virtual war on Facebook regarding justice on both sides reveals just how all-consuming politics has become. Perhaps the most troubling thing that I see is that many Christians now seem more certain of their political opinions than they are of Christ and his kingdom. So this next heading is called False Certainty, and I'll read a little bit more, and then we'll talk about it. Political discourse today, even in the church, is characterized by the brash confidence each tribe or ideology brandishes. It's the the certainty that my political views are correct and can be supported in scripture, often with some exegetical gymnastics, and yours are heretical and blasphemous. Even in the church, the warning of the former New York Times op-ed editor Barry Weiss rings true in 2020. Truth is no longer a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job it is to inform everyone else. I'll stop there. On a scale of... Nine to 10. How true is that quote from Barry Weiss?
1: Like a 13. (laughs) Man, it's because this is the the, he has done. And that article, that paragraph, I mean, has done such a good job in encapsulating what so many of us feel. And it's not just that people are politically opinionated right now. That's one thing to be like, hey, I feel strongly in the conservative worldview or i feel strongly in the progressive worldview but it goes beyond that where there's he says this certainty that my political views are not just correct but are the ones from the bible can be supported by scripture and Mm -hmm. therefore you are heretical or blasphemous whenever it is what i believe politically versus what you believe politically it becomes the indicator uh Robert Jeffers, Jack Graham, right, about whether or not you can be a Christian or not. Right. Now we've gone to a whole different level that is a dangerous, dangerous level. And that's what Barry Weiss is saying there. It's an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few. And we're just informing others. And if you don't believe what I believe, then not only are, do I disagree with you, but you're actually missing uh, the call of God in your life. You're actually missing the way of the Christ follower. Uh, Mm -hmm. And when that becomes the attitude that we take about our political views, you could just see how that unravels because it's what we're living in right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's yeah, man, man, I really think that that they nailed it in that paragraph.
0: (laughs) Well, would you look at this? If you keep scrolling, Brian, uh, they referenced David Koizis, who wrote Political Visions and Religions. And if uh, if you're unaware, we had him on the show yesterday and it was phenomenal. Go back and listen to the podcast, his two segment interview. I thought was phenomenal. He writes here in this article in political visions and illusions. David Koizis says Christians mistakenly see their political camp is merely an opinion or ideology about how policies should be shaped. On the contrary, though, each political ideology is, quote, based on a specific soteriology, that is on a worked out theory promising deliverance to human beings from some sort of fundamental evil. In other words, politics can often become an idolatrous substitute religion with fundamentalist zeal, as David French points out is occurring on both sides of the American political spectrum. That's linking to an article we actually did about a month ago, and the headline was something like, uh, America is on the brink of a fundamentalist revival, but it's not Christian. So he goes on to talk about uh, like political humility, and uh, and I don't think we have time to read all of that, but he offers a couple of suggestions. He says, as the 2020 election nears, rather than following the world and putting our confidence in politics, let's instead put our confidence in Christ, I would add. Amen. Rather than yelling loudly at each other uh, with off-putting certainty in our rightness and others' sides' idiocy, let's instead heed Paul's instruction to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's from Ephesians 4. So why don't we, he just offers three brief suggestions that I think are great. Why don't you take number one?
1: And can we just be thankful for the Gospel Coalition? Not just great articles, but always ends in a list. <laughs> you do love the list so much. Number one, be slow to post, quick to pray. If the Apostle James were writing in 2020, he might have considered adding posting in parentheses to James 119. Instead of rushing to social media to rage about injustice, police reform, mail-in ballots, or whatever the issue du jour might be, what if we turn first to prayer and meditation on Scripture <laughs> One way to guard against political idolatry is to let political discourse point us back to the simplicity and Mm -hmm. sanity of spiritual disciplines, allowing the word and the spirit instead of social media and cable news to guide our responses to the crises of our time.
0: Come on, that'll preach. Number two, this is so good. Be more certain of your failures than others. It's a constant temptation in today's partisan world to think the absolute worst about our opponent and to assume we can better read their motivations than they can. Arnold (laughs) King notes in the three languages of politics, quote, we often go so far as to believe that we understand our opponents better than they understand themselves. The only person you are qualified to pronounce unreasonable is yourself. Rather than taking a prosecutorial posture toward our opponents, Jesus summons us to first investigate ourselves. Matthew 7. As Christians, we should be the first and loudest to point out flaws within, even if it marks us, quote, disloyal to a political tribe. That'll preach. But uh, be most certain of your own shortcomings. Extend grace to those who differ. Come on.
1: Number three, be certain of Christ. I've fallen into all the temptations outlined above. I've often started to place certainty in a candidate, political ideology or policy. Why? Because I lack a robust certainty in Christ. Mm -hmm. This election season invites me and you to not only weigh arguments and candidates, but to also ultimately assess the state of our faith. Is our certainty found in our savior or are we more certain of our politics? Are we more loyal to Jesus and animated by his mission than we are loyal to a candidate and animated by their campaign? Man, Eugene Park, this is uh, this is really good stuff.
0: Yeah, I know that we're almost out of time, but let me just read his last paragraph. He said, for the sake of our witness during and after the election season, let's not be remembered as grandstanding mouthpieces for a political ideology, but a people humbled, quote, under the mighty hand of God. May we be loudest about proclaiming Christ the Lord over every earthly mm-hmm. tribe. That, that'll that preach, man. I'll be honest, that's, that's even convicting for me. Yeah. As we kind of navigate having a show, having social media, having platforms, how do you kind of navigate all those? Well, I think this is a great call. I'd love to know what you think, whether you're a Christ follower or not. What do you think of this list? What do you think of his general kind of posture or position? This, like everything, is posted on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, the first hour is in the books, but stick around. we got a whole lot of fun coming for you in the second hour, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about teachers, white fragility, and what does it mean to love God with your mind. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Hey, everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. We missed you. Glad you're back with us. My name is Ian Simpkins, and my friend Brian Fromm is here as well. It's going to be every time. Every time. (laughs) (laughs) I just started laughing at myself like I was introducing you to someone like, oh, have you met my oh. friend Brian? He's here as well. We can't shake hands, though, but hi. hi. Right. We'll just awkwardly stare at each other from behind our masks. That's, that's our reality now. A <laughs> uh, couple of things before we get into this article talking about teachers being more than just uh, managers of behavior. If you want to find us on Facebook, you can, the Common Good Radio Show. That's not only where we post articles. You can send us messages if you have thoughts for future shows or thoughts on previous shows. All that's fair game. You can also find us at Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk and wherever it is you get podcasts. Uh, Super grateful for those of you who have done it. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating and reviewing is a big help to us and the show and to our general emotional well-being. So we'll take all of that whenever you feel so inclined. Uh, I want to talk about teachers a bit because as many of you know, uh, before we had kids. My wife was a teacher. I think she's a remarkable teacher. I've learned so much more about the role of teaching and how how difficult it is under normal circumstances. But I think now, you know, because you and I are, are talking often from the perspective of parents, and, right. and that's also incredibly difficult. I'm not in any way diminishing from that. But I did kind of want to take a segment to sort of honor our teachers. Yeah. I feel like they're facing things that they were not trained for they're dealing. I'm assuming with all sorts of technological issues and frustration from parents and their own like sanity and grief and fear. I just think, man, we we should do a lot more than we pay, maybe currently do to like honor our teachers and to hmm. give them props for navigating what is what is pretty bizarre. And I found this article at Atlantic. This is uh, actually from late July. And it says teaching isn't about managing behavior; it's about reaching students where they really are. You want to uh, you want to get us started here?
1: Yeah, and just because it's a long article, I'll skip the beginning. The author talks about how what it was like to teach around nine eleven and oh, uh, right. the changes, and then the author goes on to say, almost twenty years after September eleventh, two thousand and one, uh, the coronavirus pandemic has emerged as another siren tearing through our collective sense of normal. We're responding to this virus and adjusting our methods for remote learning, which, parenthetically, is just already craziness. Um, But institutional racism is also deadly, and it's even more widespread. Derek Chauvin, the police officer who murdered George Floyd, had a symptomatic case of the racism virus. But the teachers place metaphorical knees. uh, There's a lot of imagery here (laughs) on the necks of young people (laughs) in classrooms, and their symptoms aren't always obvious. So here it goes. The best teachers don't just keep teaching. Instead, they use their pedagogy as protest. They disrupt teaching norms that may harm vulnerable students. In my years in the classroom since 2001, I've learned something about how to do this. It's called reality pedagogy because it's about teaching, reaching students where they really are, making sure that their lives and backgrounds are reflected in the curriculum and in classroom and in conversation. So we'll pause there. There's a lot to this article, but uh, this idea of uh, the best teachers we know, not just being uh, carriers of information, but also reaching students where they're at in, almost individually, like going, well, what's what's this student got going on? What's this student? Those are the best teachers. And you can think back in your own life, like who are the best teachers who did the best job uh, at reaching you that you remember 20, 30 years later? It's it's not always the teachers who were had the most degrees or who are the smartest it was the ones who knew how to engage you uh, right. and uh, and get into your life while teaching you the requisite information and other things and I, I think there's a real gift like you touched on uh, there's a real gift to those teachers who get it and who are able to do it and it's they're being stretched right now right with remote learning and all sorts of other things they're being stretched. Uh, but it will be interesting because I think the great teachers are going to figure out ways to not just adapt, but to use this remote learning uh, at, in ways to in that they couldn't do in their normal classrooms. And so there is opportunity here, but there's definitely being stretched. But we all know that about teachers. Right. But we, like you said, we don't always celebrate it.
0: Yeah, I'd love to know what you think of this paragraph here. She says, um, Reality pedagogy interrupts the notion that teaching is about managing students and their behavior. Instead, I've learned to see them as co-teachers, and I create space for the dialogue in small groups outside of class about how they experience the classroom and the world beyond it. It's a space for connection, but also for any critiques they have of my teaching. These conversations are generative for everyone involved. Teachers need feedback from their students who can see what uh, teachers have been trained to ignore in their blind pursuit of a calm, quiet classroom and students need a sense of agency, which they are often denied. I have a billion other questions because I'm reading this, trying to think through the ways that this, you know, can correspond to preaching where a lot of preaching is very much a monologue and we don't have a lot of feedback, not only during it, but, following it you know and i I, and we talked a little bit more jokingly like how critique of something like a sermon can be painful but i think is also really necessary but how do you how do you even establish some of those feedback loops where you can actually get better at your craft this idea of co-teaching i think is is a pretty interesting one
1: it is now obviously if you're a second grade teacher versus a high school there might be obviously differences but the question is if you have If you're teaching young elementary school kids, maybe how do I loop the parents in? How do I figure out how their kids are doing? How do I engage in that way? All of it's difficult and takes time. And, you know, I'm with you. I read this and I think about what you and I do uh, with preaching. And uh, sometimes it's easier to go about without getting feedback. (laughs) Like it's just easier to go ahead. But, you know, she goes on, the author goes on to write later. Uh, all teachers will sometimes fail, but that's why we have to accurately see ourselves in the classroom. I suggest that teachers videotape their teaching for study so they can self diagnose, in this case, they're talking about racism, but all things that they may be suffering from and spreading unintentionally. Like, what, uh, how do I critique myself as well? I think all of this is good. If, if, like there's one thing to be a teacher or a preacher, or whatever else, and just be like, I'm going to get by on the bare minimum and get my paycheck and this, then none of this is helpful. But if you're one of those teachers who's like, no, I want to be the best I can be and I want to be engaging kids, which is why you get into it, uh, then, then these kinds of feedback, self-diagnosis, other things I think become really important.
0: I like what she says here, too. In 2001, because, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, she was using 9-11 as uh, an example in 2001 I thought that good teaching meant delivering content knowledge to students who were behaving quote appropriately. In 2020 I know that is not enough. I've learned to see my classroom as a platform for empowering students and transforming society and to use my pe- my pedagogy as a form of protest against norms that silence students. Far from sanctifying uh, sorry sac- sacrificing content knowledge, engage students whose voices are heard are better able to learn it. What do you think of that concept that people, children, teenagers, adults, are we actually more able to learn things if we know that our voices are heard? What do you think of that?
1: I think so. Again, going back to looking at your own life, and I know work, life is very different than say when I was in high school, but it was even yeah. those teachers who engaged you uh, and and gave you some sort of respect and, and engaged you into, you know, uh, you 're felt like part of the team, part of the process, part of this communal class, this community that 's being built then you 've always offered a lot more to. I think of college and the professors who were who were very interested in you as the person and not just getting their content out. It changed everything, so I do think uh, all of this empowering students, I think this is really important
0: yeah, I think you 're right, and I think this uh, this applies not just to teachers. But to pastors, to parents, if you lead or have influence over anyone, I think that there's a lot of takeaways here. And as always, I would love to know what you all think because I know that some of this is maybe a new way of thinking or potentially controversial. Either way, uh, a mad, mad props to all our teachers out there who are weathering storms that none of us could have predicted and you're loving students and families. And we are so, so, so grateful for you. Coming up next out of Relevant Magazine, What does loving God with all of your mind actually look like? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and Brian Fromm is joining us digitally too. Nope, that one's not going to stick. I got to really write these out. Anyway, I want to talk about this article out of Relevant Magazine about what does it actually look like to love God with all of your mind, a topic that uh, has come up a lot recently as of late. But before that, uh, Brian has some words to share with you.
1: That's right. Seeing Israel is a lifetime memory, uh, but taking a Bible prophecy tour of Israel could change your life. So right now, you can enter for a chance to win a Bible prophecy tour to Israel next March with Dr. Robert Jeffers. So enter today at 1160hope.com, keyword Israel. That's 1160hope.com, keyword Israel. Israel. <laughs> did, did your voice get real high there at the end? Is that. I'm going to try to do it in full radio ad voice every time we do those. <laughs> it sounded
0: like a, a little bit like the sound that when you like are letting air out of a balloon, like, <laughs> like pulling the. Yeah, Israel.
1: Okay. Israel.
0: <laughs> okay. So I mentioned this, this topic of uh, loving God with our mind has come up a lot recently. In fact, the series that I'm working on is called mind matters and we 're talking more about mental health stuff anxiety depression suicidal ideation, things like that, which has been really intense to prepare for it's a it's i'm really looking forward to it but man it's it's been really tough so the idea just in general of uh, the mind has uh, has has been on my mind ironically and mm-hmm. I, I I thought this article was actually pretty interesting because we often kind of toss it around. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We, we just kind of rifle through those things w- without often giving it much thought. So I thought this would be an interesting conversation point. What does it actually mean to love God with all of your mind? So why don't you uh, get us into it?
1: Yeah, it starts with a quote from Vincent Donovan. The quote goes like this. Never accept and be content with unanalyzed assumptions, assumptions about the work, about the people, about the church or Christianity. Never be afraid to ask questions about the work we have inherited or the work we are doing goes on to say, there is no question that should not be asked or that is outlawed. The day we are completely satisfied with what we have been doing, the day we found the perfect, unchangeable system of work, the perfect answer, never in need of being corrected again, on that day we will know that we are wrong, that we have made the greatest mistake of all. That's Vincent Donovan. And so the article Mm -hmm. goes, when asked to identify the greatest commandment in all the Torah, Jesus said that the love that loving God with one's mind, among other faculties, was paramount. Having been a pastor and professor for the majority of my adult life, that particular part of oneself, the mind, stands out to me. What does it mean to love God with all of your mind? I have often referred people to the words of Vincent Donovan above to answer that question. He's encouraging us to cultivate a ravenous appetite for understanding. Get curious about the world in which you live. Ask questions. Keep asking them. Become a lifelong learner. Sounds easy enough, right? But those who would love God with all of their mind should be aware. The journey is not for the faint of heart. For all of its blessing, learning can be disorienting, confusing, exhausting, frustrating, and scary. So if you want to love God with all of your intellect, you'll need to cultivate humility, courage, and trust along the way. So, he's going to go on to use Vincent Donovan's quote to examine these three qualities. But that's a high bar right there, man, don't you think? Like, he's like, hey, this, if we're actually going to love the Lord with all of our mind, uh, it's going to not just take some work, but he uses words like disorienting, exhausting, frustrating, and scary.
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of people who have gone on intellectual journeys would agree. It's also interesting, as best I can tell, too. So, Jesus is, you know, re- referencing the Shema, which. Uh, comes from Deuteronomy six. And I don't think mind was actually included in the Shema. So potentially Jesus is actually adding that to sort of his list of how we are to love God. And I think it's tricky because, and I don't know if this is a cultural thing or if this is just a, a modern era thing. I don't often hear people talk about loving anyone with their mind, their heart. Sure. Their soul. Absolutely. Their strength. Well, yeah, we, you know, we love someone by like serving them or by doing physical things. I can't think of a whole lot of modern examples either in art or media where anyone's even really depicting how we love someone with our intellect. So I think it's interesting. It's, it's framed not just as, hey, you should, Christian, Jesus follower, you should be pursuing, you know, the, this intellectual aspect. It's like, no, this is actually one of the ways that you, you love God. And I've, I've, I just always have found
1: that kind of interesting. Absolutely. So the first one he says from the Donovan quote is humility. When we endeavor to love God with our intellects, we must understand that God is far beyond anything we could ever possibly conceive of or master. The wise theologians, those men and women whose work requires them to speak of God, do so warily. Take, for example, Martin Buber. For, uh, for Martin to say that we have perfectly conceived God is to abolish his divinity. We can say only that God is that undefinable X, the essential mystery, the unknowable, the paradox of paradoxes. This is not to discourage us from seeking to understand God or speaking of God. We must simply, we simply must, if we are God's people, is, however, an encouragement that when we speak of God, that we do so with a playful seriousness, playful in the sense that we recognize that when it comes to God, we speak as children, serious in that God is the essence of life, the heart. Of things, and so that keeps going. But this idea of humility, understanding who we are and who, who God is, is essential.
0: Do you do you find that to be in short supply, especially among people who might consider themselves
1: intellectuals? Uh, sometimes it comes across that way. There there yeah. can be an intellectual arrogance that I don't want to tell say that people definitely have, but it can certainly come across that way.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I, I think that this framing is really helpful. The second one he offers is courage. It is a shame that so many of our faith communities have failed to grasp the importance of genuine questioning when it comes to seeking to honor God with our minds. We do our daughters and sons in faith a great disservice when we do not allow them to voice the very real questions and conundrums that come with following Christ. Questions are what propel relationships forward into intimacy. Well, that's a great line. Think back to the beginnings of your relationships with your spouse or your best friends. Questions are what kept the conversation moving. Questions And the answers that followed are what allowed you both to explore your similarities and differences. Questions opened the door to reveal the real you that lies just under the surface of all the ban pleasantries, the banal pleasantries and politeness that so plague our Christian communities. Interesting. Therefore, in order to truly allow ourselves A genuine faith, we must cultivate an environment that allows for the sacred art of questioning. God gave us minds and doesn't mind us using them. Mm -hmm. We do this by being genuine and open with our own
1: questions regarding the faith and by modeling what it means to live into these questions. That's great, man. Last one is trust. (laughs) Uh, In order for us to love God with our minds, we must do so by realizing that we are not alone. Instead, We are members of the greater community of learners. The promptings of the Holy Spirit and the community of believers are like guardrails on both sides of us. It also allows us to risk deeper and more daring thoughts concerning God because we know those thoughts will be vetted by a loving, Christ-centered community. God delights Mm -hmm. in unity, not uniformity. Therefore... Grace must become our chief dialect as Christ followers. We must allow for diversity of thought and expression as it pertains to following Jesus. Your brother or sister in Christ will not use the same metaphors and analogies to express Christ that you will. This variety is what allows the gospel to be all things to all people. So this trust factor in the community, our brothers and sisters in Christ, is essential.
0: Yeah, let me, I know we're out of time, but I kind of want to read how he he ends it. He says, the 10th century theologian, St. Anselm, offered the prayer for those searching for God, and it seems appropriate for those seeking to love God with all their minds. And here's how it reads. "O Lord, my God, teach my heart this day where and how to see you, where and how to find you. You have made me and remade me, and you have bestowed on me all the good things I possess. And still, I do not know you. I have not yet done that for which I was made, teach me to seek you for I cannot seek you unless you teach me or find you unless you show yourself to me. Let me seek you in my desire. Let me desire you in my seeking. Let me find you by loving you and let me love you when I find you. That's Mm. so good. So, and and again, maybe not potentially uh, controversial, but that is on the Facebook page. We would love to know what you think about that. Coming up next, a couple of articles I want to tackle about racism and white fragility that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 okay so i just googled how to intro a radio segment and it says are the place to give vital info about your show to listeners first state the title of your podcast or radio show but they can read it What? Well, restating it helps it stick in the listener's mind. Mentioning the episode title, number, and date is also essential. Uh-oh. Oh. Oh. We've never done any of those things. The date, huh? Okay. Okay. Episode title, number, and date. Yikes. We have some learning to do. Well, maybe another day. All right. I got two articles, Brian. And I did mention this last article. This last segment wasn't all that controversial. This one may be the polar opposite of that. The first one, the headline simply reads, what, what, uh, what White Evangelical Christians Can't See When They See Racism. The other one is White Fragility, Sin, Redemption, and the Gospel. Which one would you like to tackle first?
1: Let's tackle the religion news one. Let's okay. go. White, what White Evangelical Christians Can't See When They See Racism. So this was written by James Smith uh, back on August the 6th. He writes, uh, 20 years ago, sociologists Michael Emerson and Christian Smith published a landmark study called Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion, and the Problem of Race in America. They pointed out that white evangelicals had had a limited, quote, toolkit for dealing with racism. Since white evangelicals construed faith individualistically as a personal relationship with Jesus, their faith and theology offered a limited capacity for understanding social issues. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And when your hammer is accepting Jesus into your heart, every nail is an affair of the heart so when white evangelicals do recognize racism they tend to see it as a personal sin requiring repentance not a structural injustice demanding uh, rectification Uh, when the sin of racism is reduced to personal animosity the solution is simply relationships that's why so many white christians have responded to the recent post recent protests demanding systemic change by encouraging friendship across the racial divide they prefer to pursue reconciliation rather than justice this has been the evangelical approach at least since the interracial hug fest at promise keeper conventions <laughs> in the 90s and continues today in the multicultural ideal for non-denominational megachurches emerson and smith's analysis remains as relevant as ever in our current reckoning with systemic racism because these are still the only tools that the functional theology of evangelicalism has been able to provide so i'll stop there Uh, this is a hard one to read because I think I fall into this. This is probably uh, when I discuss uh, issues of race with people, it will generally be uh, more individualistic. Well, uh, you know, we need more, we need more connection. We need, I'm not a racist, you know, those types of things, talking individual. Uh, And I do think that that's one of the reasons, amongst other reasons, I think, where people, uh, why people get kind of really defensive when things get talked about systemically. Um, but it's interesting to say that, you know, generally evangelicalism through this through the years has just been from an individual personal relationship and that that permeates through everything. I think it's a really interesting premise.
0: Well, and just to say it out loud too, because we often will blanket, you know, modern Christianity or evangelicalism. I think we do need to differentiate the West from the East because I feel like, our Eastern brothers and sisters have done a much better job of understanding sort of the communal and systemic aspects to not just conversations of race, but issues of faith, sanctification, worship, community, all of that stuff. So I, li- I like how it goes on. It says, but we need to lift the top drawer off that limited toolkit to discover another factor that hampers white evangelicals view of racism. While Emerson and Smith rightly pointed to the individualism of evangelical theology, I suggest another aspect of evangelical spirituality is also at work, what we might call evangelicalism's rationalism. By evangelical rationalism, I mean a tendency to construe Christianity as a set of beliefs to be affirmed, a, quote, worldview to which one gives intellectual assent. Even when intellectual, uh, intellectuals, when evangelicals press their neighbors to, quote, accept Jesus into your heart, what they mean is to believe a set of claims about God, about sin, the work of Jesus Christ, and how salvation is offered. The Christian life is understood as a regimen of Bible study, memorization, and catechesis. Many evangelicals listen to sermons like lectures, notepad in hand, trying to capture the lesson. I've been guilty of that numerous times. So by rationalism, I mean this tendency to construe Christianity as a set of beliefs, ideas, and doctrines, a kind of, quote, talking head version of religion that makes saying yes to a list of beliefs central to the faith. So central is the idea of faith that some may wonder what else it could mean. But in some other streams of Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant, religion is something that you do, putting the emphasis on habit-forming practices and disciplines. Much of what Aaron Nequist was talking about just a couple of days ago on the show about a practice-based faith. So he goes on and says, so while other Christians and people of other faiths might see that they must change their practices in regard to race. White evangelicals still think of it in terms of what they believe. To be a racist, they say, is to believe X, Y, and Z about a group of people. And if I can confidently assert that I don't believe X, Y, and Z, then I can also comfort myself with, quote, not being a racist. What we are all coming to realize, however, is that racism doesn't have to convince our intellects to co-opt our imaginations. It is absorbed through practices we never think about even in spaces where the quote doctrines might be disavowed what do you think so far i, I think i've kind of abandoned getting to this other article in this segment because i'd like yeah. i'd like to keep drilling down here
1: i think this idea of rationalism and uh it our christian faith being a set of x y and z uh, i think is true in this conversation and it affects so many other things and in it's always if i can affirm like i said x y and z then i'm you know, I'm a Christian or I'm not a racist or I'm a good dad or whatever else it might be, as opposed to uh, sometimes it's more gray than that. And it's a little less complex. And uh, I get that. I, I I can think of times in my life where it's a been my faith has been primarily uh, head knowledge and affirming specific doctrines. And this is not to say that we don't affirm specific doctrines. Right. This isn't an either or. Right. But oftentimes evangelicalism Tend So heavily towards rationalism. uh, And there's any number of reasons about that, that that a lot smarter people have written on uh, that. If everything's about a set of ideals, if if you combine, you can understand the problem here. If you combine rationalism, a tendency towards rationalism and a tendency towards individualism, you can see how uh, that causes uh, just uh, it causes some issues in the things that we're talking about in this article, whether it be systemic racism or whatever else, but also in all sorts of other ways. If it's just about me and Jesus, and it's just about me checking mm-hmm. the boxes of what I believe, That's right. uh, then things about action and other things, you can just see how those will fall through the cracks.
0: Well, and I, I wanted to put this segment here following the segment we talked about loving God with our minds, because, I, yeah, it is, a, it is a bull fan and kind of trying to show – both sides of some of the pitfalls. Let me just finish out the article. He says, if white evangelicals focus on belief might recognize racism as false doctrine, it misses racism as perceptual vice, a disordered habit of seeing others. Such vice is carried in our bodies more than it is articulated by our intellect. Philosopher George Yancey has noted what he calls the elevator effect of bodily gestures, gestures, (laughs) gestures, There was a game when I was a kid that was called Gestures and Rituals Rituals of the White Person when a black man steps on the elevator. If you ask this white person what they believe, of course they'll disavow racism as an ideology. In its focus on belief and knowledge, evangelicalism is remarkably modern, almost a mirror image of Enlightenment rationalism. But we can't think our way out of racist habits. White evangelicals must look to other historic streams of Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant, for more resources to recognize the spiritual significance of habit. We need a repertoire of disciples and pract- of disciplines and practices, such as confession that are meant to rehabituate the habits of the heart until evangelicalism becomes attuned to the habits of the heart. It will never adequately address the sin of racism. I'd love to know five seconds or less agree or disagree.
1: Oh, I agree with this, and it's hard, and and it sounds even some of that when you start talking about confession and actions, like, "Oh, this sounds really Catholic" or whatever else. This guy's a philosophy prophet, Calvin, <laughs> like, right? Uh, and so it's worth listening to, and I think uh, I would encourage people to read it and wrestle with it. Don't just you hear systemic racism, or you hear other, but you know, other things that cause you to like get defensive. Give it a read. Individualism, rationalism. We'd love to know what you think about them. That
0: was way more than five seconds, Brian. It really
1: think. was. At least <laughs> twenty five. Yes.
0: Coming up next from Eric Erickson. Yep, I did change. That's coming up next year on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. I actually looked up some scripts for introducing the radio host, Brian, the first one here. Playing the best mix of smooth jazz R and B and world with your host Mike and Isabella at MRC Radio online. <laughs> Do you want me to start doing that? Yeah, just random ones. Welcome to the MRC Show, a part of the MRC Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike. (laughs) Hi, Mike. Probably not supposed to say it as sarcastically. Oh, I almost forgot. Okay, a couple of uh, holidays today though. It is Happy U.S. U.S. Bowling League Day to you. All right. Okay, I can get on with that one. And here's one. I have no idea what it is. I hope it's not inappropriate. National
1: Welsh Rarebit Day. No idea. no idea. What's a, a rarebit? I'm going to the Google machine. Let's see. Uh, Welsh. Welsh rarebit. It's a dish. It is a food. Uh, Welsh rabbit. It's rabbit. It's a traditional British dish. Welsh rarebit consists of a savory sauce of melted cheese and various other ingredients and served hot after being poured over slices of toasted bread. Oh, it sounds nice.
0: I'm always a little uncomfortable when it's various other ingredients. Like, what? <laughs> What are those various other ingredients you speak of? That is concerning, but you learn something new. Rare bit, one word, R-A-R-E-B-I-T, hard-hitting Sorry. news here at The Common Good. Okay, so here's an article from uh, Eric Erickson. His whole blog is called Eric Erickson's Confessions of a Political Junkie, so that kind of gives you a little bit of taste. And there's an audio version of this as well, so we've linked it to the uh, Facebook page if you want to just listen to it. But I thought I thought it was a pretty... It's a pretty interesting take on something that you and I have danced around a little bit. People, you know, changing opinions or changing sides or changing even affiliations. It's something that I find is often met with a lot of scorn, you know, and we talk a good deal about cancel culture and all that kind of stuff. So I I thought it was an interesting conversation for us to kind of end on because as pastors, you know, this is a a tricky thing. You and I have mentioned before how. Even if you were to go back 10 years of stuff that we've said in sermons, like there's probably things that I would not say now um, because maybe I changed my mind on something or I was presented with new information or whatever it is. So I thought this was uh, an interesting take. You want to get us into it?
1: Yep. And anytime you delve into somebody talking about changing their mind politically, you think people will jump to, well, you know, what are you saying? We're not we're talking about how our minds change here. And he says, a former listener told me last week that I've changed and he can no longer listen to me. It took him a day to explain what he meant. In short, he said, I don't fight the way I used to and don't seem to recognize the country could very well come crashing down if Joe Biden gets elected. You know, he's right. I have changed because he is, and I was, and many of you are wrong. Four years ago, three men showed up on my front porch to threaten my family because I publicly said I would not support the president in 2016. My kids were harassed. Uh, and bullied at school. Uh, They decided uh, we had to move our kids to a new actually Christian school as opposed to the supposedly Christian school they were at. On a regular basis, people accused me of supporting Hillary Clinton and that I was complicit in the destruction of the country. Guess what? The country's still here, but not because Donald Trump won. I really was one of those people who believed every election was an existential crisis and we were on the verge of destruction. In 2008, I wrote regularly that if the GOP didn't stop Obama... Uh, and his ways the country was finished. In 2010, we needed the GOP in Congress. In 2012, if Romney didn't win, we'd have Obamacare and socialism would take over. In 2014, by God, if we could only get the Senate, we'll stop everything. And guess what? Obamacare is the law of the land. The national debt's $27 trillion, and everyone's still angry and convinced the nation is over. (laughs) I cannot bring myself to lie to you. I used to believe, I used to really believe the nation would collapse if Obama or Clinton or Biden gets elected. But we're still chugging along and both parties are complicit in the problems. Hmm. But eternity matters more to me after nearly dying a few years ago. Enrolling in seminary made me realize how I was twisting my faith to conform to my politics and not the other way around. Here's the dirty little secret that nobody wants to talk about. The country is in decline because it is full of cultural rot. And a man who cheated on the three wives with porn stars isn't going to stop that cultural rot any more than Joe Biden. Uh, who has been married to jill biden but supports the left left left-wing politics you and i uh i abhor uh netflix and then it goes on to talking about what's going on in our country uh you're not gonna read that next line there brian i mean we talked about that one we've we did that story where he talks about (laughs) netflix what was the name of that story i don't remember i don't cuties cuties oh yeah Uh, yeah yeah It says it would not be releasing a show about twerking 11 year olds if only Democrats watched it. Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, progressives, Christians and everyone else are contributing to cultural decline. Mm. Pornography, deviancy and drug use are not exclusively the behaviors of people you disagree with, but of some of your friends, your neighbors and even your fellow churchgoers. The good news is I've read the book, the back of the book. It's supposed to be this way, and there's nothing you can do to stop it except to be on the winning team. To be on the winning team requires you to do something you very much uh, do not want to do, and that is to love your neighbor. I've read the passage, and there are no caveats. If your neighbor's a Democrat or gay or Muslim or childhood uh, tormentor, Scripture says that you have to love them. It doesn't say it will be easy. Washington's not going to save you. Trump's not going to save the country, but Jesus will save you. And I am at this point in my life way more interested in eternity than the temporary. So that's not the end, but it's a great spot to start. I, you know, I, I think he's right on here. That's it. That's <laughs> I do. I do. I've talked a lot here. I think, I think people who, we, how much, how much more can we say? It? People who have put their hope in a party or a politician or an ideology, an ideology uh, are putting their hopes in the wrong spot and that they both are. going to lead you in the wrong direction, that they're both equally complicit in the problems that we have. And uh, that ultimately our hope is individuals as the church and as a nation, we stand to believe is Jesus.
0: Well, let me just read how, how he wraps it up because I I think he puts it better than I could. He's you just read the line, right? That uh, I'm more interested in eternity than the temporal, which I would maybe even push back on that one line a little bit, but that's neither here nor there. He says, that does not mean I think you or I should surrender. It does not mean we should stay home. I'll vote and I'll encourage others to vote, but I'm not going to slip into despair and think the world is over if my side loses because Team Jesus does not lose. So I cannot adopt the ways of the world and I do not think you should either. The anger, the protesting, violence, etc. that so many loud voices on the right think will have to, come if trump loses and those who say the left uh, those who say the left wins because they are nasty i don't think you can go in that direction without losing your soul or confirming you never were saved to begin with yikes <laughs> in the olivet discourse which you can find in luke 12 jesus says this and there will be signs and suns and moons and stars and on the earth distress of the nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming to the world. Too many of us have far uh, for too long looked down at our phones in spittle-fueled rages or listened to guys like me tell you the world would end if the Democrats won. Instead, we need to lift our heads because our redemption is drawing near. We need to commit to truth and righteousness, love our neighbor, and try to save souls. Eternity is more important than this country. I increasingly see my role as helping navigate people to truth away from the narratives everyone is pushing. I'm a conservative. I'm a Christian. I think politics matter, but I think we have reached a very unhealthy state of affairs when we think the nation ends with any election. I thought that for years, and we're still here. The nation is still there. Uh, Noting, oh, that's a typo, actually. Nothing is permanent in politics. No nation stands forever, but eternity and truth do matter and stand forever, and I'd rather commit to those than chill for a political party that lies as much as the other but in ways that tickle my ear. Lift up your head, people. Your redemption draws near and eternity beckons. Love your neighbor. Focus on your community more than Washington. You're not going to find salvation there or with any politician. I, I'd love amen. to know, Brian,
1: just real real quickly. Yeah, amen. Is that, uh, is that your final concluding thought for today? It is. I, I agree with them. I think we, even if I don't agree with every minor spot in there, the, uh, the issue of where our focus is, I think, is so important, especially in this highly political state that we live in.
0: Yeah, that's a good word, man. I wanted to end on kind of a uh, an encouraging, challenging note. I hope it encouraged or challenged you as much as it did us. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you all have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.